reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, and we're continuing on from last week, where you'll recall that um, uh, Jesus spent a couple of days in Samaria. So after the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They'd seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where where he had turned water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realised that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee, ends our reading this morning. Thank you, Bruce, and uh, good morning, everyone. Hope you guys are in good spirits. Could you open your Bibles for me, please, to um, John chapter 4, or leave them open at John 4, that would be super helpful to me. We'll be referring to it and you know the pages on either side of it throughout the talk today. I'm going to pray, then we'll get underway. Heavenly Father, thank you for your scripture in John's gospel and uh, speak through it to us today. Amen. If you're a Christian here today, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of an unbeliever, if it's okay to use that language, uh, or put yourselves back in your shoes before you became a believer. And if you wouldn't yet call yourself a believer, then just stay in your own shoes. And I'll ask you this question straight out. What do you think it would take for you to believe? Now, I'm not just talking about belief in the existence of God. Uh, I'm saying, what would you need before you believe that Jesus was the Messiah or the Christ, that is, the long-awaited, the God-appointed Saviour of the world? What would it take for you to believe? I've um, quite sneakily asked this question of a fair few people over the last few weeks just in preparation, and most have said they would need some kind of drastic intervention into their lives i mean if jesus turned up that would be the best by a long way if we could actually sight him with our own eyes but failing that if we saw some kind of miraculous intervention that could not otherwise be explained by medicine or science so pretty much most people said they would need to see a sign if not of jesus himself then of some kind of wonder that was directly attributed to him Now, I must say, I found this response very interesting because it means that we think in a way that's almost identical to the people in Jesus' day. They wanted to see a sign. In fact, after they had seen a sign, they often wanted to see more signs. And that is true of some of the people in today's passage. And so we're going to need to look much more closely at this question of signs. 
Uh, how are they useful? Are there limits to their usefulness? And if there are, like, what's the alternative when it comes to generating belief in our hearts? So big picture-wise, that's what we're looking at today. Signs, their kind of usefulness, their limitations, and maybe an alternative, who knows. But uh, before we get to that, let's put this particular passage into its immediate context. And at the end of today's passage, have a look at verse 54. It tells us that it's about signs, the second sign that Jesus performed after coming to Galilee from Judea. And uh, you might remember, or you might like to go back to chapter 2, verse 11, where Jesus turned water into wine. John says that was Jesus' first sign in Cana and Galilee. And Jesus has performed a whole bunch of other signs down south in Judea and Jerusalem, which are not recorded. But here, verse 54, 4 verse 54, is Jesus' second sign up north in Galilee. So you kind of got two bookends to what we started a number of weeks ago. But we do also need to bear in mind the story we looked at last week when Jesus engaged with a broken Samaritan woman against all social conventions in an interaction that brought great grace and transformation and salvation not only to this woman but to many in her village. Because in many ways, the story of salvation that involved that whole town is a very interesting foil for what happens with the people here today. But of course, we do need to reflect on this individual, this particular Galilean individual, and work out, is he a hero to emulate? Is he a villain that we need to avoid? Is he somewhere in between? In light of that Samaritan woman from last week. But today, big picture, we're talking about the usefulness of signs. We're talking about the limitation of signs. We're talking about some kind of alternative for us if Jesus is not going to pop up right in front of us. And so firstly, the usefulness of signs, because the truth is they're very useful. I remember when um, we lived in Europe, my wife and I, for a few years, we were um, on holiday in Austria. We needed to get from where we were in the west of Austria to the east of Austria, right? It's an everyday kind of problem. <laughs> and we're burning down the highway at 120 kilometers an hour, seeing everybody overtake us. And uh, we suddenly have the option of going left to Brixen or right to Bozen. Now, I'm going to ask you this question. Are you going left to Brixen or right to Bozen? Who's going left to Brixen? Okay, well done, seven of you. Who's going right to Bozen? Everyone else. You're all idiots, just like I was. Both sound very similar, right? Brixen, Bozen. We went with Bozen, bad choice, because Bozen is also known as Bolzano, as in Bolzano in the northern part of Italy that sort of juts up into Austria. So we took a turn at 120 kilometers an hour into another country. And we eventually did get to Bolzano when the sign way back in Austria took us right into the town centre. And we found ourselves going further and further into the medieval, no cars allowed, pedestrianised town centre at the busiest time of day with all these Italian gentlemen slapping on the windscreen saying things like, Stupido! Idioto! Buttfaceo! And the thing is, like, when you're in that scenario, you start replying in kind. It's like, me no blamo, <laughs> fatheado. Anyway, I'm here today, so we did make it out. <laughs> but that sign certainly did its job, and we, we made it to Bozen Bolzano. No two ways about it. And uh, without traffic signs, you, you would get lost, wouldn't you? And that's the point of signs, isn't it? They actually point somewhere. They move your focus away from where you are to where you need to be. 
or maybe they offer some kind of explanation of what you're looking at. But the point of a sign is they point to something. And that's uh, what we do indeed see in John's Gospel, isn't it? So if you go back to chapter 2, verse 11, we see that what Jesus did there in Cana of Galilee, that is turning water into wine, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. You might remember the point of the sign was that Jesus turned the the old stale water of human religion into the abundant choice wine of the gospel, that is of faith in Christ. You might recall the sign pointed to the coming of a new age of the Messiah as forecast by Old Testament prophets where new wine would kind of drip from the mountains. You might remember that the glory this first sign pointed to was actually the glory of Jesus' death when it wasn't wine that flowed freely so much as his own blood shed on the cross to bring us back into right standing and open friendship with God. See, the usefulness of signs is they actually point to something. And the same is true of today's story. So have a look. An official desperately sought out Jesus to heal his son who was close to death. And having arrived home, he realized that his son was better at the the exact moment of his interaction with Jesus, one o'clock in the afternoon, when Jesus had had said, your son will live. Now the sign, it points to the fact that Jesus brings life, not just relief from a fever, but eternal life when the official believes the words of Jesus and ultimately when his whole household believed. You see, just as Jesus had promised the Samaritan woman last week that he would give her living water, he now shows us right here in today's passage that he brings life. In fact, we learn that Jesus brings all kinds of life. He brings life for those at a distance as well as those right before him. Uh, he, He brings life for those who do not seek it for themselves, like this little boy and the whole household as well as for those who do. He brings life for those who are young, and he brings life for those who are more mature. Uh, He attends to the needs of the body as well as the needs of the spirit. So in all sorts of ways and in all sorts of people, Jesus brings life. And that points to his ultimate act of his death and resurrection, which secure for us eternal life, life with God in perfection forever. And of course, that is summed up in the purpose statement to which we have referred repeatedly in this series. And I feel like doing actions that involve pointing to my bum. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, John's Gospel. But these, I've forgotten the actions, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So of course we're positive about signs because the signs point to something. They point to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the reason why he has recorded the signs that he has recorded. But it is interesting, isn't it, that he has recorded just seven out of all the signs that Jesus performed in front of his disciples, not to mention the many others that he did in the presence of other people. Why not record more of them? Well, part of the answer, friends, is that signs have their limitations. They had their limitations back then, and they continue to have their limitations today. You go back to chapter 2, when Jesus turns water into wine. Chapter 2, verse 11, the disciples believed in him. That's good. But later in that chapter, and I'd love you to have a look at this in chapter 2, verse 23. Read along with me. Now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival... 
Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. That is, he knew what was in each person. So get this straight, right? Jesus is delighted with his disciples' burgeoning faith, but then he senses something insufficient in the faith of those others who saw his signs, something that held him back from embracing them. He knew that in their hearts was just an interest in the miraculous, in the big show, right? In the novelty. They liked the signs, but they didn't trust in him as the Messiah. He was the performer. I mean, sometimes they promoted intrigue in the lives of people who saw them. And on occasion, that intrigue might kind of prompt a further investigation, as it did in the figure of Nicodemus, who approached Jesus at night. Just a couple of verses down, chapter 3, verse 2. You remember what Nicodemus said to Jesus? We know you're from God because no one could perform the signs you're doing without God. But they just have their limitations. Let's be honest, not all signs are equal. And you can see that in uh, some of these pictures here. Some signs are just confusing, aren't they? Isn't this what parking in Manly is like? Uh, You have to look carefully at this one. Some signs don't quite communicate the message you think they're communicating. Can I just say the 8 o'clockers were much quicker to laugh than you guys. Still other signs are just plain wrong. Unless, of course, there are cows that eat cars in that part of the world. So signs, they should point to something, shouldn't they? Or at the very least promote intrigue, if not belief. But they don't always work that way, and that is certainly the case in John's Gospel. Often the signs produce something almost akin to unbelief. I mean, I find this astonishing, I wonder if you do as well, that after Jesus fed 5,000 people in John chapter 6, from just a few loaves, and after Jesus explained that he had come down from heaven, the Jews who had just eaten lunch say to him, what sign will you give us that we might see and believe you? I'm like, weren't you just there at lunch? Almost everyone abandoned Jesus in the desert that day, even though they had just dined out on his miraculous provision of bread, And when just about all had gone, Jesus said to his disciples, I suppose you fellas want to go too. And the Apostle Peter incredulously says, Go. (laughs) Lord, to whom are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. So we believe. I guess when there's a show on, people are going to watch But the true believers are those who accept the words of Jesus, the words of eternal life. That was the case with the disciples in John chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, when everybody else left. That was the case with the Samaritans. Let's look again in John chapter 4, where Jesus stayed with them for two days, and where verse 41, because of his words, interesting, not his signs, but his words, many more became believers. And in verse 42, having heard for themselves, they said Jesus really is the saviour of the world. And that does seem to be what's happening here at the very end of John 4. The despised Samaritans seem to show the exact kind of belief that the Jews, whether they're southern Jews from Jerusalem or northern Jews from Galilee, the exact kind of faith that the Jews lacked. 
Interesting that John says there in verse 44 that in his hometown a prophet has no honour. And I think that John is being deeply sarcastic when he says the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem. In other words, they liked the signs. Yeah, they, they were interested in the show. They enjoyed the novelty. Man, they just couldn't get enough, but it, it didn't lead to real belief. And I think that's the only way to make sense of Jesus' rebuff when the official begs Jesus to heal the son who is close to death. And he says in verse 48, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Well, the Samaritan woman and the Samaritan village believed upon hearing the words of Jesus. But the Galileans, his own countrymen and women, they won't believe unless they see signs. And even then, is it belief or is it just the show? The Galileans welcome Jesus. Yeah, they do, but not as Messiah, not as Savior of the world. They welcome him as some kind of circus performer. And so Jesus rebukes the hometown crowd. You people, he says in the plural, verse 48. Which is kind of interesting, isn't it, when it's uh, one royal official, a single, singular man who has asked the question, what do you think we're meant to make of this fellow? Is he a hero to emulate? Is he a villain to avoid? Something in the middle, just an ordinary guy? We hear this story and it reminds us of that other story in Matthew chapter 8 where uh, Jesus heals the servant of the Roman centurion because in both cases you have a man with authority who pleads with Jesus for a healing. In both cases there is a healing that takes place at a distance. But man, the differences are remarkable, aren't they? In the other case, the official is most definitely a Gentile. He was a Roman centurion and it's his servant who's healed, not his little boy. And in that case, the centurion is commended for his faith. There Jesus says, oh, look, I'll come, I'll, I'll come right away and heal you, boy. And he says, you don't need to come. Now you just say the word and that'll be fine. Here, the official could well be Jewish. We're just not told. It's his son who is healed and there's no commendation of faith. Did you notice the official twice asks Jesus to come down? Verse 47, verse 49. And Jesus replies, nah, you go. It'll be, it'll be okay, I'm staying, you go. Yeah, it's almost opposite there. Where Jesus had a very long conversation with the Samaritan woman, here he is brusque, he's terse. Where he commended the faith of the Roman centurion in Matthew 8, he, he almost dismisses this gentleman, you can go. Maybe we're meant to see that there's no real faith in the official at least not at the start maybe he's just desperate to have his little bloke healed and you can understand that i mean it's understandable that he'd be prepared to give uh, everything and anything a go even if it meant rocking up to this kind of roving rabbi jesus of nazareth it's understandable but it's not particularly commendable that he approached to jesus and if anything is commendable it's that he took Jesus at his word. If you have a look at verse 50, literally he believed in Jesus' word and departed without a sign. So can, can we see, I don't know, maybe just the seeds of belief? Is there some kind of movement or progression from just being a desperate father willing to do anything for a solution to someone who believes in Jesus' word and then when connecting the power of Christ to the word of Christ, he believes in Jesus himself. I mean, it is wonderful that the boy is healed. It's even better that the man receives eternal life. 
he along with his whole household. But it, there's kind of an ambiguity or an ordinariness about this guy. He's somewhere between a hero and a villain, isn't he? And I wonder if that ambiguous scenario reflects the ambiguous natures of, nature of science. I mean, they have a certain value as a starting point, making us aware of God's reality perhaps, but they remain unproductive, unfruitful, unless they lead to a concern for the Christ to whom they point and whose glory they signify. I mean, they might lead towards belief, but they're not necessary for belief. Just ask the Samaritans. They're useful, but limited in their usefulness, which we consistently see throughout John's Gospel, as they very often don't lead to belief. Just ask the Jews. And you would have to say that it is in obeying Jesus' commands and trusting in his promises that true belief is enacted and experienced. And so, friends, if this is the case, if we realize that signs tend to stir up intrigue but don't necessarily lead to belief, and often don't, is there an alternative that does lead to belief? Or can I ask the question in a different way? Is there one sign above all that generates belief? Well, I wonder if this answer will satisfy you. If we fast forward from this point in John's Gospel to the end in chapter 20, and the disciples are in a room, and they're chattering excitedly about the resurrection of Jesus, though Thomas had famously doubted that Jesus had actually risen from the dead, because after all, resurrection, man, I mean, that would be a sign, wouldn't it? And so it was that day that Jesus appeared among them in his glorious resurrection body that still bore the scars of his crucifixion. And he says to Thomas, come on, man, stick your fingers in the wounds in my hands. Put your hand in the wound in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And you will remember Thomas's very famous words, my Lord and my God. Well, that was Thomas' con confession or conclusion, having seen the sign of the resurrection of Jesus, having seen nothing short of Jesus himself standing before him in the flesh. Now, Thomas's words are famous, but it's the words that immediately follow that are more germane for us today, in which Jesus says in verse 29, Tom, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. See, is there an alternative to having Jesus pop up before us today um, at our request or demand? Uh, is there an alternative to witnessing an extraordinary miracle that cannot be explained by science or medicine? Or to put it another way, is there, if there was one sign to kind of see... What would it be? Well, it would be exactly what Thomas saw. It would be the sign of the Messiah resurrected from the dead. It's what Thomas saw. It's what John testified to in his gospel, which means, actually, friends, you and I don't need to see any more signs with our own eyes. We have all we need in the witness of Scripture, which is brought to life by the wonderful Holy Spirit. Because the Scriptures and the Word always uh, the spirit and the word always go together and they're not competitors now if you think about it i guess you'd have to say 
Very few people got to see the sign that Thomas saw of the resurrected Jesus in the flesh before he was exalted to heaven. How many people got to see that, do you think? 500? Like a thousand at most? Hundreds of millions of Christians, probably billions of Christians since then, have not seen that with their eyes. And we will never see Jesus in that way. Friends, as we've already sung today, when he returns, it will be on the clouds of glory to wrap up history. But none of us need to see it with our own eyes because we have that testimony written down for us by John and brought to life in our spirits by God's Holy Spirit. And friends, that is enough. It really is. Go back to John 4. Many Samaritans believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. After Jesus stayed with them, the Samaritan says, Well, we have heard for ourselves, and we know this man is really the saviour of the world. In John 6, Peter and the disciples can say, Go? (laughs) Man, where are we going to go? You, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. We're staying with you. In John 20, Jesus says to Thomas, Because you've seen me, you believe, but blessed are the ones who haven't seen and who still believe. And in the very next verse, John concludes his biography of the Lord Jesus Christ with the words to which we have already referred. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written here that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. Friends, let me say, I believe in miracles. I am a believer, somewhat cautious, but a believer. I know that God can do extraordinary things through ordinary people like us. I believe in healing. I pray for healing. I have seen it happen. But let me say, if you are looking for something definitive to promote belief in your life, you do not need to see another sign. You need to hear the witness of John in his gospel to the work and the words of Jesus. Because you can have life... By believing without seeing, blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. And so I think part of the application uh, of this passage today, is, uh, which is kind of more involved than it immediately seems, is for us to be content with the testimony and the revelation and the witness to Jesus that we have in front of us. To want God to give us more is effectively to say to him, Look, I know how you sent your son into the world because you love the world to be crucified for the sins of the world because he was the saviour of the world. And I know, for goodness sakes, you rose him from the dead and then you testified to him in the pages of scripture, a book which will not go away. I know you've done all that, but frankly, it's not enough and I need something more. We don't need more. We don't need more. We have more than enough right in front of us every day. And there is something that really is perverse that insists that God hasn't done quite enough to witness to himself and his magnificent son. But even more than contentment, I want us all to have life. I mean, you look at this slide, find life is the byline of our series in John. It's the reason why John wrote his biography, that by believing we might have life in Jesus' name. It's the very thing Jesus came to supply, and without believing in him, we will surely perish. 
And so this whole series, indeed all of John's gospel, pushes us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited, God-appointed Saviour of the world. And the burgeoning faith of the disciples in these early chapters, they urge us to similarly let our belief develop as we learn more about the person and the work of Jesus. Is your faith developing? The intrigue that, that brought Nicodemus to Jesus at night begs us to follow that intrigue in our own lives, to see where it leads, and to experience the life that awaits. Are you intrigued? The enthusiasm of the Samaritan woman spurs us to let similar enthusiasm for Jesus well up in our own lives. Could you have her enthusiasm? And even through the ordinariness or the ambiguity of this royal official in John chapter 4, we see Jesus supplying life, not just physical life to a sick little boy, but eternal life to his desperate daddy and indeed the whole household when it was converted into belief. Friends, in John's Gospel, we have a great witness that in Jesus we have a great Saviour who brings lasting life to all who would believe in Him. He is nothing short of the Messiah, the Son of God, the Saviour of the world, and life is found in His name. The question is, do you have it? I want us all to close our eyes and bow our heads, and I'm going to lead us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, forgive us for the times where despite the extraordinary witness to yourself, we have continually begged for some kind of miraculous sign in order to believe. We know you can do amazing things, but there's just unbelief in our hearts. Forgive us for that and help us to believe. Let us be people whose faith is developing or people who follow the intrigue in our soul until the point where we experience the life you offer. Let us be people who have enthusiasm for the Lord Jesus welling up in our own souls. And we pray this, that we might know Jesus and love him and follow him wholeheartedly. And we do pray all these things in his name. Amen. Friends, we're going to uh, continue by sharing in the Lord's Supper.